This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kemp and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes, a podcast series brought to you by the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Queensland. The podcast is about those little things we can do in our university classroom. The things that might be little, but that can make a big difference. My name is Seb, and I'm joined here by my friend and colleague, Al. Hi, everyone. This series is really motivated by our belief that ultimately what matters to the student experience is what happens in the classroom. In our universities, we talk a lot about course design, teaching policy, teaching budgets. But what we don't often get a chance to do is talk about small examples of good practice that can have a big impact. And so in Higher Ed Heroes, what we want to do is to share those examples by having conversations with great teachers, conversations about the types of practices that they use to bring their classroom to life and which they believe could be adopted by others to good effect. And we're trying to have these conversations without using the kind of jargon that's often associated with teaching committees in higher education. So we're looking for a buzzword-free zone We're going to try not to use words like flipped classroom, blended learning, work-integrated learning, or even research-led teaching. And if we do hear buzzwords like that, which are better suited to teaching committees, we're going to hit this buzzer. (laughs) We hope the buzzer's going to encourage us all to talk in everyday terms about teaching practices. In today's episode, we're talking about student collaboration in lectures. And we are being joined by Associate Professor Gerhard Hofstetter from the School of Social Sciences here at the University of Queensland. Gerhard, welcome. Thanks for having me, Seb and Al. I'm looking forward to it. You're an Associate Professor in Anthropology and Social Sciences, and I know from having talked to a lot of your students that the way you're including them in your lectures is quite different from what an ordinary lecture actually looks like. So you actually asked them to collaborate in your lectures. Well, it's not just that I asked them to collaborate. I guess without their collaboration, there wouldn't be much of a lecture. They're, a, they're an integrate uh, part of, of the whole process. So a couple of years ago, I was um, lucky enough to get some funding from UQ to develop uh, a massive open online course. And I know, sorry, jargon. Um, <laughs> essentially, that course... You know, looks at world issues in, in anthropology or what anthropologists can bring to different world issues. And really, it's a reconfiguration of a course I've been teaching for a little while uh, in the school, which is a bit of a survey course. What do anthropologists at UQ actually do? Uh, I was in- inspired by examples from the, the US where people actually said it, it, it you know, reinvigorated the department to have a course where everybody was kind of giving the best lecture, was talking about what they were really passionate about to first-year students to hopefully then, in, you know, get them excited about second, third-year uh, anthropology. With all the money that I got, I was actually able to visit UQ anthropologists in the field. And the subsequent course that anyone can take online, if you just Google World 101X, is a course that follows um, colleagues into the Darling Downs in Queensland, um, to Cuba, to Chile, to Malaysia, to actually see what anthropology looks like in the field where anthropologists do what they do. Now, this course functions a little bit like a textbook in the sense that students in my course on campus watch the episode, do a couple of uh, multiple-choice questions, do some readings before they come to the lecture. Crucially, they also um, answer some questions that creates word clouds for me. And I actually use those word clouds in the lecture. 
And some of the questions relate to issues how a particular issue maybe around mining impacts on their lives or how they have you know, had an experience uh, around certain issues. But also questions about what have you understood? Where do you still have issues? Should we cover something in a bit more detail? And all of that gives me something, very little time to prepare, but it gives me something to then work on for the next week's lecture to respond. So lecturing style is actually, it's quite reactive in the sense that, you know, I, I have a, a basic, basic kind of theme that I want to address. How I'm going to do that and what exactly I'm going to talk about is largely down to students' responses prior to getting into the lecture theatre, but then a lot of it is actually in the lecture theatre itself because I might say something about something and students go, wow, that's really interesting, tell us more. (laughs) So the prepping work is a little bit different in that I have some slides, but actually there's a lot of knowledge beneath those slides in order to go go off on tangents if students uh, so wish. So it's always a bit of a, not, 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 it's not a gamble, it's a calculated gamble, uh, <laughs> but it, it, it can be um, nerve-wracking for me sometimes going in on, especially on a topic that I'm not the expert on. And so as part of the, the lecture series, I don't just have my expertise, I also have guest lecturers, but conversations or panels where students, again, can ask questions directly to either people who've been part of the, the MOOC that they've seen in the, in the course so far, or graduate students who are working on related issues who have interesting field stories to tell or contributions to make. You know, you once described this to me as like you, you enter the, the classroom here at UQ with around 10% of content that you have that you can talk about and film. The rest really depends on the students and what they bring to the table, right? So in a way, that's a very different concept from, from what most students are used to. How do students respond to that? Pretty well, but again, it does require at the beginning of semester kind of, you know, rewrite the rules somewhat and, and alert students to the fact that it is really important you do the readings, you watch the episode before you come here, because otherwise you're not going to experience all that you can actually experience. You can't, you're can't. you not going to learn as much as you would otherwise. So for their learning experience, it is important for them to be active learners. Press the button yes. if you must. Here we go. <laughs> but you have to be active in the sense that they have to participate, not just coming to the lecture for the hour or two hours of the lecture, but actually participate in the course. And that happens before, during, and after. And so that's a really important aspect to kind of reorient that, you know, taking a course isn't just showing up for a lecture and tutorials, but it's actually committing to the subject. And then, you know, from the, from the first week, every week you're going to be doing things in multiple platforms. So as part of the, the, the MOOC that they're doing, they're also in a discussion forum. Because one of the, the, the issues I had when I started here, I taught at other universities before, and I came to UQ and I thought, wow, the, the student population is um, pretty monocultural in, in some sense. Pretty white, pretty middle class, and so the experiences they have, not the same, but you know, within, within a sort of narrower band of, on the spectrum of experiences people can have. So the question was, how do we uh, expose our students to more student experiences? And so that's what the MOOC really does, because every, every time we run it, there's about two, 3,000 students taking it. And so in the discussion forum, they get to interact with people. So if you've may, you may have had an experience of, of mining in, you know, because you come from Toowoomba and there's mining in Darling Downs, but how does that relate to someone from Mongolia who's had experiences of being displaced from their land because of mining activity, for instance? You know, broadening out the student experience by bringing in different kinds of students into really 
you know, many places that are in the lecture theatre but also outside of the lecture theatre in terms of where students interact with each other but also with other students and with me. Did you deliberately set out to encourage the students to do things outside of the classroom which weren't about writing and reading? Because that seems to be a theme in a lot of the innovative courses that we see that students are encouraged to have experiences beyond the typical there's your textbook, there's a few questions to think about, go away and we'll see you next week. Was that deliberate? Absolutely. Many, many years ago I read this paper. An anthropologist who studied the Mormons uh, in, in, in Utah and one of the words uh, she came up with was a memory act and she was explaining how Mormons who nowadays reenact the the passage from the East Coast to Utah as a sort of pilgrimage, reenacting, right, experiencing that hardship of, you know, with horses and caravans, of walking through forests and the like. And so experience is really crucial in what she was talking about in that it produces memory acts. It kind of, you know, flashpoints of something you can relate to. You've experienced it. It's much more visceral as a learning experience than reading a book about Oh, okay, they they had horses and they're you know they're coming across and it was arduous and there was hardship. Okay, now I've read it, I've understood what what it's all about, but you haven't experienced it. And so those memory acts are actually crucial to to build into people's learning processes something much more visceral that they can relate to, but also that they will remember much more later on. So not just you've read something, you can kind of regurgitate it and that's it, but actually you you link it to emotions, you link it to feelings, you link it to a whole other. Mm. Uh, range of learning experiences. That's a great way to describe some of the things that we speak about all the time, isn't it? Memory acts, the idea of teaching through experiences mm. to put something in the head that comes from somewhere different from the page. In fact, one more example, if I may. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Um, in one of the lectures, um, we interviewed Gassan Haj, who's a famous sort of anthropologist who works on multiculturalism, but also Australian uh, monoculturalism at times. The way I come into the lecture is, OK, let's talk about multiculturalism. Let's talk about Australian history a bit. Um, but really what I get them to do is to design their own nation, because one of the uh, wikis that we work on that's related to that week, too, is about Australia Day and the kind of politics around Australia Day, the um, issues around how does a nation that is now has a very long indigenous history, is, has a multicultural, more recent history, has a history of colonization, how does that nation celebrate itself? Right. So what's the role of a national day? You know, you could read stuff about it. You could watch videos about it. But I actually want them to think about if you created your own nation, what would that look like? And so part of that is uh, what would, uh, you know, you have to find a name, what language you're going to speak, etc. But, but also what, how are you going to celebrate your nation? What's it known for? What's important? What are the values? Mm -hmm. What are the moral values, perhaps, if you have any? Should you? <laughs> so, this, you know, dealing with those questions, they then in small groups work on that, think about it, present it to each other. And that all feeds into the assessment piece about, well, let's think about Australia Day. And hopefully that shifts their way of thinking about, oh, is it about, you know, um, what songs get played on the day? Um, or is it about having a barbecue? Um, is it about celebrating one particular culture of another? But it reorients and think, to think about, do we need to celebrate ourselves? Who are we, right? Do we have to maybe redefine who we are? So kind of always think about broader questions that sit behind seemingly easier questions about a particular issue. I'd like to move to a second aspect that tie we, we tie under the 
category of having students collaborate in lectures and proactively filling space in lectures. And that's your use of, and that's got to be a buzzword coming here, Pecha Kucha technique. <laughs> oh, I don't think that's a buzzword. It's not a buzzword. I think it is. is it? Okay. Hit, hit the button. Wow. <laughs> okay, here okay. we go. So we had a, well, it's, it's one that's not really that well known. Certainly I came across it only for you. So what, what is that and how exactly does that work? I'll throw in another one, Ignite Talks. It comes out of a whole range of different formats. Um, I think it originated in, in architecture or some kind of professional environment where people were just fed up with PowerPoints, you know, PowerPoint slides and words on slides. People said, okay, how do we make this a bit more visually attractive and how do we make it shorter because <laughs> these can be pretty long and boring right and so different formats evolved one of them is Pecha Kucha which is 20 slides 20 seconds each slide um, and really it has to be visual slides no words on slides Ignite is 20 slides 15 seconds and for my teaching I use 12 slides each for 15 seconds so it's a three-minute presentation that's done by the student that's done by the student in your lecture in the lecture yeah so they come prepared with, it's kind of preloaded. They have a particular topic for that week and they, in consultation with me, decide, um, okay, I'm going to do my Pecha Kucha on you know, Syrian refugees in Germany, for instance. So then they have 12 slides, each for 15 seconds. So really you can only put a picture on the slide. But it's a really good teaching tool to get people to think about, wow, in three minutes, what can I actually get across? What's actually the really important point to get across? Not just, oh, here's a lot of fluff, and here's some statistics, and here's some stuff. I want to cut through all the stuff and get down to the key message. So whatever the topic is, really, it's a, it's a skill to learn to boil it down to three minutes and then to present that and not present it, talking very quickly, and, you know, <laughs> and get, you know, cutting a 20-minute presentation to three minutes, but actually doing it in such a way that it comes across so that people can take in the information and so as part of that feedback loop too, I have students in the audience writing, thinking, drawing their kind of response to the presentation so that everyone is engaged in what's going on. It's been interesting because for some people initially when we kind of workshop, okay, what is, what is Ignite or Pecha Kucha? How are we going to do it? Uh, I do one. I show them how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, people mess up because you have... 15 seconds per slide and it's very difficult to speak exactly for 15 seconds so invariably sometimes you go over and then it looks messy because the next slides come up or you end up with these awkward silences <laughs> <laughs> and you know so it's kind of it's, it's again it's a, it's a key skill though to learn how to use silences how to use you know the speed you're talking in how to make sure you know what the point is that you want to get across and how to get it across in that kind of format which really is any kind of presentation format because even if you have an hour and PowerPoint, you still want to have a key message that you're getting across and not just 60 slides <laughs> with a minute each, right? So, yeah, lots of different kind of aspects of a very short, small kind of assessment item that I have in this course. But students, I think, really like it because, A, it's not that long, so they don't have to, you know, come up with this huge presentation. They also like it. I used to have group presentations and everyone hates being in a group and, you know, the free rider problem of somebody's not doing anything and then somebody's doing everything. So this is their own. They own it. They can choose a particular topic that they're really invested in. And I always tell them, choose something you're really passionate about 
You've got not just one of these presentations in a lecture, but you've got several, and you do it across the entire semester. So every student in your course, in the course of the semester, has to present one of those in the lectures, right? Correct. So they yeah. sign up at the beginning of the semester, and they can choose amongst a range of topics, and then I guess they send them to you a day or two before, and then do your bit in the lecture, and then they come in themselves. Yeah. So it kind of depends. Sometimes I might have a couple at the beginning, Sometimes, if I can see how it kind of weaves in with my lecture, I kind of say, okay, you're, you're up in about an hour's time, so I've got a three-hour lecture slot, so I can kind of intersperse them. And there's usually automatically, after the Pecha Kucha talk, there'll be some questions that arise from that. And again, you know, I let them lead a bit of the discussion. I'll come in, I'll jump in, and kind of how it relates to the broader topics and bringing it out to broader issues we might have already talked about in the lecture or we will address in the lecture. But I have to say, you know, in, in a couple of instances... Um, I had them go first, and a couple of particular Petra Kuchas were so good, I thought, well, that's pretty much my lecture in three <laughs> minutes. Um, I think you've summed it up so nicely, I don't even want to start, you know, because they, you know, they did such a great job in actually distilling what a particular issue is about. For sure, raises lots of issues and questions we can then discuss, but actually the lecturing part, I was like, well, I've, I've got 20 slides here I can bore you with. But this was really good because it brought it, it brought it to the point. And what year uh, are, are these students? This is a second year course. Second year. And how big is the class? Uh, so this year was only about 30 students. Okay. And yeah. would you think that's a... You couldn't maybe do it in first year or do an, an element of it, and you probably couldn't do it with a really, really big class? No. I think there are some limitations around time. I have... I think the largest I've done it with was about 50, and we had sort of a different it was taught in a different way and we kind of had a Pecha Kucha day where it was just a lot of presentations and in between discussions mm. so I guess there are different ways of dealing with student numbers um, I've also seen some people who have people record theirs as a video and then that can be assessed by, by a lecturer but I actually like the, the presentation style in front of a, a live studio audience you know <laughs> and, and, and the kind of response I'm desperate to ask this is quite a brave <laughs> technique for teaching. How many times have you found yourself in the hour before you're going into a classroom thinking, I have no idea how this is going to play or what I'm going to say? I think we never have uh, a clear idea of how it's... I mean, we, 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 we like to think as teachers, oh, everything's going to be fine because I'm a great teacher. But the truth is, you never know what's going to happen, right? Uh, you could have a bunch of people who are just not not listening on Facebook or... I see my role a bit of as a stand-up comedian, and I'm not a great stand-up comedian because I'm at the university. I'm not a stand-up comedian in real life, so, you know, um, mediocre talent. But the, the role of a stand-up comedian is to read the audience and ha always ask, how am I going to re-engage the audience? Okay, if I see some people falling asleep or if I see some people disengaging, getting on Facebook, how can I re-engage them? And that's kind of a, a process. You can't just come in, give your two hours of lecture and leave without ever looking up. I mean, that kind of lecturing style has long since been <laughs> abandoned. I don't think it's that brave. I think it's just, how do we respond to the audience? So like any performer, we're also performing on one level. How do we respond to the audience? How do we get the audience to be interested in whatever we're teaching? Some people might find this to be an absolutely nerve-wracking idea to walk out there into your lecture and thinking, I've got 10% prepared, right? Let's see what happens. I, and I, I, have, to, I have to say, this 10%, 90%, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it sounds yeah. a bit like I come in, uh, you know, whatever, <laughs> I've not prepared anything. What, what, I th what, I, what I meant was, uh, I have 
in terms of the slides, there's only about 10% of pre, pre-designed content. 90% is whatever happens in the lecture. I've, I know a lot of stuff, so there's, there's knowledge sitting behind this 10%. <laughs> but it's about having that space, that open, open space. This idea of having that open space for many people would be a daunting idea. They wouldn't sleep a single minute the night before the particular lecture is taking place. But there must be something incredibly liberating about doing that. And so maybe to the people who are tuning in, some sort of form of encouragement of how, what, what that liberating thing is that it might cause and, and as a word of encouragement, perhaps to try something like ours and, and muster that courage. Al used the word brave earlier and you, you know, you're nerve-wracking. I don't think I'm brave. I, it is nerve-wracking. And before I go on, there is that, it is like a performance, you know, you kind of, before you, you, you get on the, before you tread the boards, If there isn't a bit of anxiety, then you've lost the passion and love for it, right? So you need to have a bit of that, but you don't want it to be debilitating. And I think one thing a lot of teachers uh, sadly suffer from is imposter syndrome. And we think we're not good enough or we don't know enough. Sometimes you just have to jump in and you realize, actually, I know a lot. Actually, if somebody talks about this other issue I hadn't prepared for, I still know stuff about it. I can still talk about it. I can relate it to something else we actually know a lot of things and sometimes we kind of forget that we we have this expertise and you know we can talk off the cuff when we're meeting when we meet a colleague at at the coffee shop not that this is like teaching but to get away from this notion that everything has to be pre-prepared the knowledge is there it's just about how we relate it to students and I think it's also a powerpoint or um, having a script or even reading it is is sometimes not the best way to engage students and talk to them and, and with them, right? Taking them along mm. for the journey to whatever point you're making in, in the lecture. And sometimes you have to go on tangents. Sometimes you have to take the long tour around because that's how people relate to the topic. And that's why I always encourage students to, to bring themselves in because that's how they're going to relate more to the topic if they have a personal investment in it, right? If they have a personal relationship, story, issue that they can relate it to. And we do that already. That's the the thing I heard so strongly there. We always have these contingent moments in lectures where you're asked a question or you have a debate and it goes somewhere beautiful and you don't, it's unscripted and it works. So that would be the reassuring message that we're doing it already. So push it a little bit further and see what happens. Gerhard, this has been tremendously fascinating and really inspiring, actually. And so thank you so much for coming in and sharing this with us if you who are listening into here are interested to engage with Gerhard or express some ideas or suggestions of what ideas you might have then of course you can do this on our, through Twitter, through Facebook through Instagram or you can just find us by searching Higher Ed Heroes podcast. Thanks for joining us on Higher Ed Heroes and we look forward to your company again. Thank you.